Welcome back to another episode of Useless Degrees. I'm your host, Anthony Rastigue. And now that we're friends, you may call me Tony. Today, my guest is Keith Malong. Keith is a graduate from the University of Michigan with a degree in neuroscience. His next plan was to attend medical school, but unfortunately wasn't accepted upon his first application. After taking some gap years, he utilized his time working on a clinical research project while also valeting cars and exploring hobbies such as skateboarding, photography, and in-home workouts. He recently got accepted into U of M's medical school and will begin his journey in his desired career. Today, we're going to talk about what you can do if you don't get into medical school right away, how to explore hobbies that can unlock your full potential, and advice on accepting rejection. Now, let's get started. All right. Thank you so much for being here today, Keith. How are you doing today? I'm doing amazing. Thank you. Glad to be on. All right. So let's get right into it. So you earned your undergrad at a top-tier research facility and had high hopes to continue your education in the medical field. So talk to me about what your desired career and education path was while you were studying neuroscience. So the decision, or I suppose the wanting to become a doctor, I don't think neuroscience, my degree had much to do with it. Basically, I studied neuroscience because I was interested, like all humans are, I guess, with just human behavior. And I thought understanding the biology behind that would be a pretty good way to get a science background for medical school. But trying to get into med school or trying to become a doctor was something that happened over the course of just growing up. I wish I could say there was one solid event that happened, but it was the culmination of a lot of things. I'd say starting growing up, as you might know, my mom was a nurse and a lot of people in my community growing up were nurses uh, in the Filipino community. So I kind of grew up learning about the stories of their patients and treating them. I think it was also, I don't know, something about listening to the story of the immigrants. Whenever I went to parties with all of the Filipino people that raised me, there was a common theme of altruism and like selflessness, helping each other out. Because I think that's something that's key to, I think, every immigrant story. Um, so all of those kind of values were things that kind of meshed together. And when I was looking at careers that I wanted to do, obviously you can do that in any field, like engineering, nursing, medicine, doesn't really matter, but you can find ways in any field to help people. But I thought medicine would be interesting. And neuroscience Again, think- in particular is very interesting because of the mystery surrounding it. All the research and everything that goes into it is so intense. Everybody's on top of their game when it comes to something like that, because it's such an unexplored concept altogether, just the way the human brain works, it seems. So I'm interested that you really chose that route as opposed to a plethora of all the other routes that you could have taken within the medical field. Yeah, the brain, I find it so interesting because again, it's core to everything that we experience as humans. And I thought that at Michigan, at least with our neuroscience department, we're able to mold it, the degree into, if you're more interested in the biomolecular side of the brain, you can study that. If you're interested in the more of the psychology of human behavior, you can study that, or you can pick in between, pick and choose, and you can kind of have a a blend of those two. So I really liked the flexibility there. And again, in like any other biology degree, it prepared me with the scientific background. A lot of the classes that I took part of the degree were really helpful in preparing for my MCAT, understanding how lab science is done with reading papers, all of the nitty gritty and frankly, not as much, not as interesting parts to, you know, preparing to be a doctor that just aren't as fun, but. And it all seems to really culminate together and actually contribute quite a bit toward the next step in advancing toward the medical career, it seems. Even while in the moment, it may not seem like it contributes that much, it still does something one way or another. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. So according to the 2020 accepted class profile for the University of Michigan, there were over 8,272 applicants 
but only 168 were accepted. So for this school in particular, clearly the competitive nature of this program was rather intense. So how did that make you feel during your application process? Well, it was daunting. It was definitely daunting to, again, the University of Michigan is a, is a fine program. So I knew that it was going to be very difficult to get in at the outset. Also getting into medical school is, is difficult. The American, uh, I think the Academy of American Medical Colleges, I think it's called the AAMC. They have this statistic. I think the five-year average for people who are trying to get into medical school out of all of the applications at any one point, only 60%, no, only 40% of applications um, result in getting into a medical program. So I know at the outset, it's gonna be very difficult. And being that it was my second time at that, I definitely felt a lot more pressure because when it's your second time, um, if I hadn't gotten in, it would be one of those life decisions where I'd have to consider, all right, I've tried over the course of three years, twice now to get in. Maybe it's time to consider alternatives. Maybe it's time to see what else I want to do with my life. I would have had to retake my MCAT. My MCAT was expiring. So this kind of was another, you know, my, my last shot. And then I would have to reflect deeply to see if I wanted to continue with the process. What do you believe you did differently the second time around? The first time around, there are, there's so many things. I think I was very naive when I was going into it the first time. Um, when I applied in my as a rising senior, I didn't do enough research going in. I made a lot of assumptions about timelines. I didn't get as much help as I as I needed. I didn't know that. The second time around for my essays, my personal statement, I got a lot of feedback from many eyes. I had many eyes take a look at my essays. And that, I believe, was a critical adaptation from my first application cycle. I isolated in reflecting for my second um, application. I also kind of reflected. After that first application, there must have been a sheer amount of disappointment, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah, 100%. And it's so funny because in being that I went to, you know, all my peers were pre-health, many of my healths were pre-health. And, you know, we knew, I knew who got in, who didn't get in. You know, I scrolled on social media. I'd see people, you know, announcing that they got in and stuff like that. And it was little old me. Of course, I was very, very proud of my friends, but you know, I always, I, I did want to be, I also wanted to get in the first time. So definitely, definitely was disappointed, but you know, that's how it went. But after I was rejected, I definitely had like a lot of reflection and I had to ask for a lot of feedback from the committees, the admissions committees. I, I just straight up asked them. I got on the phone and asked, can we set up a meeting? Can you tell me what it is that you think I need to improve on? And that was definitely something that helped me the second time around. That's interesting you say that because I feel that not enough people do that, especially with regular interviews in general, aside from medical school. The fact that you actually reached out and asked, you know, what could I have done better? And actually not only accepted the rejection, but really opened your mind and ears to every sort of ounce of feedback that they could offer your next application. That's interesting. It doesn't seem like a, a lot of people do that right away. It's almost like yeah. the rejection is enough to kind of shy them away from ever entering the premises of this employer or yeah. school. Yeah. I, and I understand that completely. Negative feedback or just feedback that there's a tendency to I don't know, take it personally. Sometimes you do want to shut your mind to it. And one of the reasons I was able to use feedback so well in my second application, I'd say it was because I worked a job 
uh, in the dorms. I was a, I was an RA and in my senior year, I was like a supervising RA. And in that position, I, I got a lot of feedback from my, um, from my immediate supervisor. This was my first job where I got regular meetings with a manager and stuff like that. And I just remember I got shit on a lot. <laughs> and, and that was a good thing for better, for worse. Uh, I may not have agreed with how it was, the feedback was presented, but it was an experience getting tough feedback and then trying to understand this feedback could help me. I could either shut it out. I could say that, you know, this is, this is, this is BS and just ignore it. Or I could look for the ways in which I could use that feedback to improve myself. But I completely understand the first time someone tells you that you're not good enough, of course, you're not going to want to listen to that person. So I completely understand. And that's one of the mental hurdles I think people need to overcome when it comes to dealing with failure. Especially after the last couple of years that you spend to get to that next level too. I imagine that that must have just hit a lot harder. And I'm actually curious to hear a little bit more about the RA life too, because that type of feedback, I think could also really, and it probably, it certainly did, build thicker skin once you realized how many people were talking shit about you. And at the end of the day, I mean, RAs are almost kind of like babysitters for college students. So the yeah. feedback must have been pretty hilarious to read, but also at the same time, it probably made you you question a little bit of your motives or some of your actions at the end. I definitely say that my, for my personal undergraduate experience, what I learned, the most value I got during college wasn't from my classes, wasn't from, you know, going to lecture halls. It was definitely with by working with people, especially by working with people in the dorms, just because you get exposed to people of all backgrounds, walks of life, faiths, what have you, and understanding how to navigate the relationships and identities that you have with these diverse populations, in addition to, again, as you said, getting tough feedback from what, whether it be other RAs that don't think you're doing a good job, your supervisors who don't think you're good doing a good job, your residents who don't think you're doing a good job, you know, any number one of those sources definitely is an area that you can use for growth. And I really like how you mentioned earlier that you got more out of that actual interaction with those college kids, aside from lecture halls and everything. That tends to be a common theme throughout my show. A lot of people like to mention, you know, it wasn't so much the school part that really taught me a lot of things. It's the experience altogether. Yeah. It's the interactions with everybody. Like you mentioned too, the different backgrounds. I mean, it just opens your mind to all sorts of different parallels. I think at the very least what I will have to do in the future with patients of different backgrounds, because when I was working with, um, you know, residents to, you know, in, in a very general sense, improve their wellness, I had to it really helped to understand their backgrounds. You know, I, an example, I kind of give a lot, you know, it's not as easy as just recommending a solution. Like you're not doing, you're, you're stressed because you're not doing well at school. Well, obviously you need to spend more time studying or something like that. Something incredibly unhelpful. You know, it's not helpful when, you know, that student maybe has to work three jobs. That's stuff that you don't really know unless you build relationships with them. And that's like an example, like for example, as a physician, the issue of non-compliance is non-compliance with um, recommendations. For example, they don't make the lifestyle changes that they need to. They don't take the medications. It's not helpful to just say, do it. There are any number of things in, as part of their background and their lived experience that you just might not understand um, unless you really dive deep into those relationships. So that was the big value I got by working as an RA, just understanding that I need to know these things about people if I'm going to better serve them. Absolutely. And 
And just from this conversation already, I don't know how in the world someone could leave you a bad review. It just makes me wonder what these kids were saying to you. <laughs> uh, you know, I had to stop the fun sometimes. <laughs> That's good that you were actually committed to doing what you were supposed to do. And so following your application status, you went on to explore a variety of your interests and they really seem to keep you both happy and healthy. So tell me a little bit about what you set out to do for your own well-being. Well, there was a bunch. Let's start with for, for I'm a huge advocate for the preventative alleviation of stress. I think there's a lot when stress happens as a part of work or external factors, it's really difficult to deal with. And I think that there are a lot of things that we can do on the daily to try to alleviate that kind of remove stress from our lives. And for me, one of the things that I liked doing was maintaining a disciplined workout routine. I guess during my second, this second gap year, something I really enjoyed doing is using the home gym that I was able to set up. I think it's really empowering to be able to isolate different parts of your body, try to improve them, make them bigger, see how they respond to the way you change your workout routine or your diet. Um, that's something that I really enjoyed. And that's just the physical side. On the creative expression side of the hobbies that I've been pursuing, um, I picked up photography. My dad had an old DSLR that wasn't really in use. And I really liked recording memories. You know, that's one of the primary uh, uses of the camera. I just really liked how when I, when I bring up a memory in my head, I know it's imperfect. I know that I'm losing detail. I'm losing data. But when you take an image, right, that is not the case. You see exactly what happened. And that can actually allow you to recall more information about an event. It happens all the time whenever we get to hang out with the boys and I'm able to post some photos to Facebook. I think when I would just, last time we hung out, I had a comment from, I think, Al, he was just like, I had completely forgotten that so-and-so did this then. And I just really like being able to do that to kind of record memories. Cause when I studied the brain, I kind of, I understood the biological reasons why we forget things. And I thought the camera was a really cool way to. That is so cool because I've literally been experiencing the same thing. There are times where I don't know if it's just my memory, just completely fading away or getting old or something, but you're absolutely right. When you look at a photograph after having a thought in your head or reflect on some sort of memory and then and when you're actually able to view it in some sort of visual medium, it's beautiful. Yeah. because it just yeah. takes you back. You recall everything. It all just suddenly comes right to you. And it's amazing that we all have cameras in our pockets nowadays, because just think about all of the memories, I don't know, in, in our grand in our grandparents' generation, just think about all the things that they can't recall because someone had to have a film camera on them to record something. From here on out, that won't be the case just because we'll always have these in our pockets. Right. It'll be nice being amongst the first generation of old people that will be able to recall their golden years whenever they were with perfect accuracy. And I think that's, there's something really beautiful about that. Especially people our age. We grew up in an interesting era because we had a decent amount of time without cell phones of any kind, but also grew up while they had that huge boom. So we got to utilize them in during the right age, but we also had some carefree living without them. So we got a really unique perspective, I would say, that stands above others in, in a particular sense. And I think that the the whole cell phone thing, like you mentioned, I mean, it's just fascinating that we're just able to capture everything. And so, and I, that is true because when I think about my younger cousins, for example, we just celebrated one of their birthdays and these are kids that have had these devices from the get-go. I'm saying they have their first smart devices with cameras and stuff like that around the time that they could start talking. So, you know, it's part of their education now in a way that it wasn't for us. 
right? The old fashioned way is just- You were the last generation yeah. before that transition took place. Exactly. We had, like I said earlier, a unique balance of both lifestyles. So that's yeah. what kind of sets us apart from the competition. We can see through different lenses when it comes to this kind of stuff. There was one more hobby I did want to talk about that I thought was important. And I'm in, I am a huge advocate for hobbies that allow one to reflect, to pause in the hectic, hecticness of life. And for me, that hobby was definitely poetry. Um, I did creative writing as a minor when I went to Michigan and I loved it. It was just a class that allowed me to take a break from these biology classes where everything was at such a heightened pace. I had to memorize all of this minutia of detail, cram flashcards, blah, 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 listen to recordings at two times speed and all of that. And then I would go to these poetry um, workshops and there would be like seven of us and we'd talk about our feelings and we would write about, we would reflect on why things made us feel this way, how our identities made us think about current events, stuff like that. And when I was able to do I just loved it just because it was again a change of pace and it allowed me to think about think think critically about who I was why I felt these emotions and I think more importantly I'd say other people's emotions and other people's identities and I really like that about poetry so that's another hobby that I was able to explore more deeply during the gap years that's what I love about these hobbies is that they're able to give you a chance to escape the intensity of in your case neuroscience studies which I imagine was just constantly circulating throughout your head. So those individual moments of you reciting or writing poetry or your in-home workouts or anything in that nature, it's really able to take a break, but also feed yourself with some sort of self-satisfaction. I definitely think that hobbies are just a great way to unlock your creativity and your motivation altogether. So then what's your advice to people that feel that they need to add something more to their life and could use some sort of activity or project to keep their mind stimulated when they're going through intense studies of anything, whether that could be work or school? Well, I think my advice, the first thing I can think of is uh, do it. Um, but more importantly, when you're trying to find a hobby that can that you are hoping to allow you to pause from the hecticness of life, I just think it's really important that you're able to use whatever hobby that you pick. And it could be anything to, again, reflect on what it is that you want to do with life. It doesn't even have to be that big, I guess. For example, when, when I started with poetry as an undergrad, the, one of the things I didn't like about just at least my experience of life is how quickly I forget things, how quickly it is that if I don't have, again, a photo or if I don't have a video of an event, I'll forget it or an emotion, it'll just pass by. And I really thought that poetry would be another way, similar to a camera that I could record emotions and something that allow me I could look back on uh, as a means of reflection. That's not really advice. I guess something that I would tell people if they're looking for um, a hobby to keep their mind stimulated, stimulated is you don't have to think too big. Um, and what I mean by that is I feel like when people are trying to start a hobby, they might get very consumed by the idea of accomplishing a massive project. And I think that sometimes that can be intimidating and, I don't know, stops them from when they don't meet these lofty expectations. Um, it can be very difficult for 
for them to continue. And I think that's that's a very difficult thing. So I guess start small. It doesn't have to be something massive like complete a, I don't know, a photography portfolio or anything like that. It could be something simple like go on a photography walk. It could be instead of having the massive goal of, I don't know, becoming a bodybuilder, maybe it's achieve a, a desired weight look first, you know, starting small. Right. Because it seems like a lot of people have like a tunnel vision when it comes to starting a hobby. You know, they focus more on the end result as opposed to the metrics that it takes to actually achieve that accomplishment in yeah. the end. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you said, I'm glad that you said that they tunnel vision on the end result, because again, it is the journey. I think whenever you're starting a hobby, it's so easy to look at the the old masters, right? I don't know. I'll, I'll take, I'll take photography or writing as an example. You'll read the work or you'll view the media of, of people who've been in the game for decades, right? It's, this is their art, this is their craft and passion. And then you look at what you have. And then, you know, if you're comparing yourself, if you're comparing yourself to them, it's really easy to try and convince yourself to stop. I don't know, something as simple as, you know, if you want to, if you want to learn how to, I don't know, uh, if you want to be a bodybuilder, right? And, you, and you're like, I want to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then after two years of, of training, you, it's very difficult to get to that level, but it could be easy to discourage yourself from continuing. But yeah, I think it's important to, when you're picking something that you want to picking a hobby to add value to your life it's really important to focus on that journey to continue comparing yourself not to other people but to the person that you were yesterday a week ago a month ago because as long as you're going up you know that's that's a really good thing that you should be proud of and it's quite a timely discussion too especially with the first month of the brand new year everybody is constantly talking about what they're going to do differently this year or what they're going to add to their life so do you have any goals of yours that you would like to share it was funny because i was talking with ann my girlfriend uh just the other day about some of the new year's resolutions that we want to do or some some goals for the year and for me something that i would love to do is again with writing and photography i would love to complete a project um i think a, a collection of photos or a collection of photos and poems together about some theme that i have yet to determine i think that would be something i'd really love to do in my writing workshops in undergrad the final project for any class would be a portfolio, you know, collection of 10, 20 pieces of work that you just put together that you're proud of. I'd love to do something like that, but around a theme. It could be an emotion, it could be a word, anything. I just want to do that. Obviously, I need to establish some action items so that this this dream becomes a reality, um, but that's one of them. And then, I don't know, I think my other, another goal is I've been doing, you know, I've been working out and training not very seriously for since undergrad. It would be really nice and I was just talking with Ann about this earlier. It'd be really nice to get to that level where I'm focusing on specific muscle groups. I'd love to get to understand the anatomy, cater my workouts to that. I think also being more intentional about my workouts. There are, there are, I would love my figure. I have a vision in my head of what I want to look like uh, by the end of 2021. And I want to get there. I'm proud of the, I'm proud of the results I've gotten up to this point, but I have, I have loftier goals now. <laughs> and fitness in particular is so focused on goals itself. You mentioned it, intentionalizing your workouts. And I think that's actually very interesting too, because there are a lot of people that will go to the gym just to work out. Some people do it just to kind of maintain a good enough figure, or they'll actually contribute consistently and they'll actually try to grow 
in all different sorts of muscle groups. And I think that's also kind of cool that you mentioned that you've been sticking specifically to in-home workouts as opposed to getting a gym membership now that gyms are open across the across the U.S. This morning I was at the gym and I went very early. That's just the time that I like going and it's completely empty. And I mean, there's just no greater feeling than a solo workout of any kind. Even like you mentioned that being at home, there is a good level of satisfaction that you can have with just being you in your basement going at it like that. I feel really at home down there and it's really nice because I don't have to wait. There is absolutely, again, there's absolutely no reason for me to not go to the gym. It is downstairs. I found that even in undergrad, I lived across a field from the central campus recreational building. And there were still days where it was very difficult. It was a mental struggle to walk across a field. It's not a large field, but it was it was a struggle to get myself there in the mo- some mornings. But now that it's down two flights of stairs, that's definitely not big. There are other things I'll there are other obstacles sometimes that'll tell me to not go, but distance is definitely not one of them. You're right. Proximity is definitely a determining factor for realizing, wow, it's right there. I might as well partake in it. Got to go for it. Flipping back over to the medical school route and back on the topic of goal setting as well. What's next in store for you in terms of going down the med school route? So I have about seven months until classes start. Um, Right now, I just finished, I'm going to be finishing my clinical research job uh, in a few days, actually. It will be my last day. I've trained the next, it's a project in which I recruit patients patients to a, a registry of research patients. Basically, they get onto a list, they donate bio samples, and then researchers will use that. So I've trained the next the next recruiters. So I'll be leaving there. I'm currently going to be working as an EMT for the local private or the local ambulance company, uh, get some patient experience, patient contact. Uh, that's what I'm going to be doing until then. And hopefully, hopefully some, uh, my valet boss will hit me up again so I can start valeting again. But again, we don't know when that's going to be uh, because of the pandemic. But those are the three, the two main things, again, EMTing and valeting that I'm going to be keeping myself busy with. I remember I used to valet cars too. I kind of missed that job. It was an interesting one. It's like there was a lot of downtime, but at the same time, you're driving some pretty cool vehicles and you're walking out with a bunch of cash in your pocket. So there's not much to complain there. I really enjoy the customer service aspect. Um, One of the reasons I like, you know, as someone that really likes science, I picked medicine because even even though I do love science, I don't want to be just a scientist. Um, I've worked I worked in a lab for three years, and you know it's a very technical job. It's a very important job, but not a job for me. I spent many long nights um, in an empty lab bay conducting experiments, and that didn't really appeal to me. I really enjoy working with people, so the customer service experience that I got um, as a valet, you know, I think that'll be very helpful when I'm a doctor because you know you get cranky people, you get happy people. Similar to working in the dorms, you get people from all over and being able to work with them is something I hope will prepare me for medical school. It's like every single interaction with any individual is going to contribute toward your successes at the end of the day. When you got into your school of choice, which is amazing, by the way, after reflecting on the time in between undergrad, what would you say you learned about yourself altogether? All that time you spent, all those projects you worked on, everything that you consistently contributed toward your well-being, what would you say you learned about yourself? I think... 
I learned two things. I think first, I have to paint you this picture of, of my work ethic in, in undergrad first. Uh, in, in undergrad, I'd say I was definitely a hustler. I, I was, you know, taking a full course load, nothing, never anything like 18 credits, of course, but I was, you know, taking 12, 14 credits. I also worked a lot in my junior and senior year. I averaged like, you know, 30 to 40 hours of work. I'm talking like employment, whether it be being an RA, working in the lab or, or valeting. And I can't say I liked doing it. I was able to handle it. But I don't think I was in love with working, but I, I just did it. I had to, you know, help out with the financials and then also work on my my resume and then go to school. But when I didn't get into med school the first time, what happened was I graduated. I took a one month vacation to the Philippines. I landed at DTW at the end of that month. And then all of a sudden I had no responsibilities. And that was that was a night and day transition for me because I went from having a Google calendar filled from, you know, waking up in the morning as an early hour and then finishing at like midnight to an empty calendar. And what I learned was one of the things I learned was I will always now value a work-life balance. Um, I do not think that while work is very important, I don't think work is life. You know, and these are two things that must be kept kept separate and apart. So that was the first thing I learned. But I'd say second thing I learned over the course of applying to medical schools and especially during my gap years was I learned how much I take for granted and how much I want to change that fact, how much I take for granted the contributions of other people to my success. What I mean by that is I think I gave myself too much credit. I thought that I I thought that I gave myself too much credit when it came to understanding who was responsible for my success. I now think that 100% of my achievements are due to other people. I'm definitely doing the easy part. But what I mean by that is when I was applying my second time around, um, I realized that whether it's the skills that I've acquired, whether it's the opportunities that I've been given, or whether it's the essay, like the actual application itself, I'm only able to do this because I have a team of people. My prior experiences, everything from growing up to undergrad, whether it's the people that raised me, the immigrants, the Filipinos that I call Tito and Tita, like my aunts and uncles, um, whether it's my, you know, my boys from high school, my teammates in quiz bowl, my coaches, my teachers, my professors, all the way up until now, my employers, my friends that have gotten into medical school that are, that were very happy and willing to help me with my next application. I realized that it truly is the case that I am no one without the people that have helped me throughout the years. And that's something that I understood, especially when I was reaching out to people and reflecting on my life when it came to applying this, this cycle. So that was the big, I think a bigger revelation um, that I had. Right. It's definitely, as we kept mentioning throughout this episode, it really is the people that bring about the best in you. It's really the people yeah. that motivate you. You're not going to get anywhere doing it all solo. There's going to be yeah. some sort of contribution from other people to really get you to that next step. With you being, with all the wisdom that it seems like you've got right now, what would you say to people that are discouraged by the fact that they didn't get into medical school. They spent so much time in the library. They were pulling all-nighters for those exams, studying for the MCAT. They were doing everything and they just couldn't get to the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that I would I would say is first be okay with being discouraged and be okay with failure. I know it's as as someone that's obviously been rejected before, I it is something that it is something that that hurts. 
a lot. Uh, it's disappointing. And just to know that you've done all this work, you've spent all of this money ultimately for it to result in not getting in. Um, that is definitely, that's definitely a, a very disappointing time to have. And the first thing I'd say is take time off. The medical school application process is long. As you mentioned before, Tony, it's not something that you want to go into immediately afterwards, because obviously I took another, I took a, after my first application, I took two years off as this is the, this is the beginning of that second year or yeah, this is the beginning of that second year off, but first taking time off. And then after that, when you feel mentally ready to tackle uh, the process again, it's a matter of asking yourself and being brutally honest and, and asking, what did I do wrong? In what ways was I not ready? Because when you get rejected from medical school, it's not that you're not going to be a doctor period. It just means that you weren't ready. You weren't ready just yet. And you're an amazing applicant. You've done incredible things and no medical application committee is, uh, I know from any one of these committees is not gonna, does not change that fact, but you have to try to figure out what was wrong that first time. I recommend asking as many people as you can, as many committees that rejected you, as many schools as possible for feedback, because that's, again, I feel like feedback's been a common thread. You gotta ask for feedback or else you'll be reaching around blindly in the dark when it comes to trying to improve your application. Uh, for me, it was, they gave me very concrete recommendations. It was, you know, well, there was a general, I need a bit more reflection in these essays. And then there was things like, I, I would like to see more patient contact, more patient care, stuff like that. And then the final recommendation is when you ultimately reapply, get as many eyes as you can on that application. Ask anyone from people that don't know you as well, perhaps professional contacts to people that have known you for a long time, because the more eyes are only going to help. And that is what I think helped me the most um, when I reapplied again, just asking as many as people as I could for, for their thoughts and their perspectives on my application. That is amazing advice. I definitely think that that's going to resonate with people, especially with the common theme throughout the episode about the collaboration with others and the interactions with other people to really elevate your successes. So thank you so much for being here today, Keith. Best of luck to you in medical school. And I cannot wait to see what you accomplish in the future, man. All right, thanks, Tony. My guest today was Keith Malong. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with your friends and family and go ahead and follow our Instagram account, useless.degrees. Follow us on Twitter at uselessdegrees underscore and go like our Facebook page, Useless Degrees Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to entertaining you all on the next episode.